On this episode, John Delavolpe. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and Wisconsin. And a lot of the exit polls. Biden won that youth vote on average by over 20 points, in some cases closer to 30 points. He won the, just called the millennial vote, 30, 44 vote, by around eight, nine, 10, 12 points in each of those four states. Everyone over the age of 45, Trump won. I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. John is the polling director at the Harvard Institute of Politics and the author of the new book, Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Look, I'm Generation X, and I'd like to think I'm forever young, you know, like a forever young voter. But let's face it, Gen X is now officially middle age, and that means I'm middle age. And it's this new generation of voters that are going to be increasingly driving American politics for years to come. So with the 2022 midterm elections on tap and 2024 already top of mind for so many people, I thought we'd do something a little different on this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, and nerd out on voters 18 to 25 years old and those who are soon to turn 18 and figure out what they're all about. As Della Volpe notes, he's not a completely disinterested pollster. During the 2020 campaign, he took a leave of absence from Harvard to advise President Joe Biden on the best ways to woo Gen Z. And by all accounts, he was wildly successful, which is among the reasons why I thought his insights could be valuable to anyone, left or right, who's trying to figure out where the American electorate is headed next. And now, John Delavolve. John, thanks so much for joining me here on In Trump Shadow. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks, David. Uh, hey, listen, I want to get into a number of things that really fascinate me about the young vote. And particularly, I wanted to talk to you about the young vote and conservatives and younger voters. And and if they're taking the Republican Party, taking the conservatism or what to expect from them as they grow older. Uh, but just to sort of establish a baseline here, because as a Gen Xer, and, and I'm wondering if we should if we're, we shouldn't be allowed to be called Generation X when we're 50 years old and middle aged anymore. I think you can do something about that because it's just weird because I say Gen X and I think that I'm still 18 and now I'm old enough to have an 18 year old. We're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. Yeah. Let me, let me, let's work on, let's, let's, let's work on this and then we'll work on the Gen X problem, right. which may be even bigger. Yeah. By the way, where do these, where do these names come from? Because, you know, there's Generation X and Generation Y and Millennial and now we're at Z and is it like hurricane names where they're going to have to start all over at A or where does this come from? It actually, I think they are literally going to start back over at A. And uh, yeah, there's a, there are a handful of sociologists and pop sociologists who every few years, right, try to, to kind of develop some, uh, some buzz around these different generations. And for a long time, millennials, Gen Y, the net gen, you know, um, was, they were fighting for that. But millennials kind of stuck because I think, you know, they came of age in the new millennium. Um, Gen Z, I don't know where that came from um, after the fall of Gen Y, but next is Gen Alpha. Those are the babies today. Those are the kids going to school for the first time under COVID. But uh, I don't know, maybe that's the next book. We're going to focus on Gen Z while, while we're here. 
Um, and Gen Z is between the ages of what and what? I'm not one of those guys, David, who's going to say you have to be born on this day or that day. Okay. However, we're dealing with roughly 70 million Americans, um, roughly between the ages of 10 and 25. Um, okay. Um, and when we think about voting, and we'll talk about this, I hope, but they share a set of values, I think, with millennials. Okay. So when you look at younger voters or this Gen Z plus millennials, we're talking of well, 40% of the electorate, and they will outvote their baby boomer, you know, aunts and uncles and parents in 2024. So this is very quickly becoming a very, very sizable, you know, chunk of the electorate. A very fascinating topic because we, we, we spend a lot of time on interim shadow talking about 2024. I'm talking to John De La Volpe. He's the polling director at the Harvard Institute of Politics and the author of a new book, Fight, How Gen Z is Challenging Their Fear and Passion to Save America. Uh, John, there was one passage that jumped out at me as I was perusing the book, um, and I wanted to ask you about it, and particularly how it relates to your title of how they're using their fear and passion to save America. Here's the passage, uh, which again, fascinated me in, in the book, Fight. One of the most challenging questions I ask Gen Zers today is to name the time in their lives when they were most proud to be an American. More often than not, I get blank stares or examples of random sporting events like the USA soccer team finally beating Ghana in a 2017 friendly match. I've found that young Americans have no such trouble answering my follow-up question about a time when they were ashamed of their country. So, how are how are they going? I am not. By the way, I am not saying that they can't save America. But I was thinking about the fact that this really is the next generation coming into their own. That it's hard to sustain anything—a family, a company, a business, a university—if you don't have, if you don't care about it, if you don't love it, if you don't believe there is something good in it. And I read that passion, and I wanted to ask you about that. What does that tell us about? this generation and the role they're going to play in shepherding the United States of America further into this century and into the future. Um, it's a great, great passage that you, I think are highlighting David. Can I, can I give you, since it's a podcast, can I give you just a little bit of context on this? That's what podcasts are for. Right. All right. So uh, we can do a couple different ways, but let's think about it from our place first. Okay. Gen X. If someone asked me that question, especially as I'm thinking, you know, January heading into February of an Olympic year, like I remember being in fifth or sixth grade watching America beat the Russians, right? Miracle like, on ice. Okay. Miracle on ice. I remember that, right? Um, I also remember, you know, my first days of college, how we came together after the tragedy of the Challenger. And of course, you know, 9-11, et cetera. So like those are the moments I would have said if, if, if someone asked me that question, okay? Millennials have um, similar kinds of memories, Democrats or Republicans, they remember um, how America came together, you know, uh, big, big, based on large part of the leadership of John McCain in 2008 after Obama's election, okay? And they remember that and they remember older ones, 9-11, et cetera. So that's what I think we get when we ask older generations that. Today, I think it's f 
fair to recognize, I hope it's fair to recognize that I don't think that this generation of young people, any generation in 75 years has had to deal with more trauma and tragedy and chaos without that communal moment of coming together as Americans, as this generation, you know, great recession, opioids. We could talk about all those, all the, all the, all the, kind of the, the details around, around that, the school shootings and the violence and the inability to feel safe in your own school. They've dealt with all of those kinds of things. I think in a, in a heightened sense than even compared to us, but they haven't had those kind of communal moments. It doesn't necessarily equate though to not loving their country, right? I think um, to be disappointed in your country means that you love your country. They're not apathetic. That's the message um, that I uh, hear and feel when I'm conducting interviews like the ones that you mentioned um, across the country. Fascinating. We're talking to John De La Volpe. He's the author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion uh, to Save America. How does how did Gen Z vote in 2020 and how crucial were was the Gen Z vote to Joe Biden's victory? This is uh, I think this is really fascinating. So let's kind of break this, break this down, especially because we're talking Republicans and Democrats. So, um, again, Gen Z, the early, you know, we think about the youth vote as 18 to 29 year olds. When we look at exit polls, that's a definition of the of the youth vote, of which half of it roughly, roughly half of it would be classified as Gen Z, okay? Um, Joe Biden would not be president if not for that relatively small portion of America. Give you some examples. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Uh, When we analyze the exit polls, Biden won that youth vote on average by over 20 points, in some cases closer to 30 points. He won the just called the millennial vote, okay, the 30 to 40 or 30, 44 vote, you know, by around eight, nine, 10, 12 points in each of those four states. Everyone over the age of 45, Trump won, okay? So it's the huge margins of, of younger voters, okay? So they had a, a much larger, sh- Biden had a much larger share, um, number one. Number two, they voted, David, in record numbers. Um, so more young people voted in 2020 than actually young people voted in Obama, in 2008 when Obama was elected. Um, it's still not as high as I think it should be, but 53%, it's the first time in this country, a majority of people under 30 voted. I will tell you that um, having kind of looked at this vote in, in these presidential cycles now for 20 years, I, uh, I think that the magic number for uh, a Democrat to win or for a Republican to win is 60% of this youth vote, okay? Our Democrats' job is that you need to get 60% on a national basis and Republican needs to keep that number in their, in their 50s. And it could be by earning, they don't need to win it, okay? They don't, everybody doesn't need to win this youth vote, but they need to either earn, you know, mid 40s or there needs to be like a third party candidate you know, like we've seen in, in, in a few of the last elections. Why did President Biden get such a large chunk of the Gen Z vote? Well, um, I think it's fair to say that I did just for, for you and your listeners to know, I took a leave of absence from Harvard and actually joined that campaign. 
and um, I uh, was uh, pulled, um, you know, and advised on strategy around around young people. I think there are just a couple of, of points that are worth recognizing. One is, and I'm not taking any credit, just recognizing where, where, where things are, okay? In, in heading into summer, his approval rating was only 33% among young people, Biden's was, okay? It wrapped up the primary. It was clearly not a focus of his primary messaging. It was 33 um, fave, I think like 55 unfave. By the end of it, it flipped. It was 55, 32, almost an exact, you know, uh, 180, net 45 point change. And it wasn't as challenging or as hard as you might think. Um, he basically, and I talk about this in detail in the book, he made a point of actually listening and hearing and, 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 and reaching out to younger people. He did it first on St. Patrick's Day, about a week or so after, after Super Tuesday, you know, when, when, when Sanders was essentially finished, but was still in the race. And he, he made an appeal to younger people and said, listen, I hear you. And we might have different tactics, right? We might believe in different approaches, but we share the same values on, at that point, I think he's talked about healthcare and climate. He then, he, so he basically used that, I hear you approach, you know, and grounded his values with their values, agreeing to perhaps disagree on some of those tactics. So I don't think it was any more complicated than that. Um, clearly he had the, you know, clearly the progressive wing of the party had his back, right? You know, AOC and Sanders and others, they, you know, they worked in pretty close kind of collaboration around, around policy. And he continued to basically use that approach um, over the course of the campaign through paid as well as kind of free media. John, Devol De John Delavolpe, excuse me, is the author of Fight. A Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America. So when I talk to conservatives, particularly older conservatives, and I mean older than me conservatives, you know, not always, but often they say we're screwed because younger voters, they're all a bunch of socialists. And basically when I'm dead, they're going to outnumber Republican voters. And there's nothing Republicans can do because everybody that's coming up and is super young. And, you know, even though they're going to end up getting older themselves, they're all socialists and they're just going to vote for Democrats forever. So are they all socialists? Only about a third of socialists, right? <laughs> you know, and, literally. And let like, me ask you, no, let me just stop you there. I'm, I'm are they socialists flip? like, you know, Eastern Bloc, this is a general, a Gen X term because you don't have the Iron Curtain anymore. But we had it when we were kids. I mean, are they Eastern Bloc like communist socialists, or are they Sweden Denmark socialists, where you get all the fruits of capitalism, you just have to pay higher taxes for it? They are, they are uh, Northern European, Finland, Norway, um, democratic socialists, and I was somewhat flippant when I said only a third are socialists, but. Um, I want to tell you one uh, in 20 years, one of um, one survey I'll never forget was when we measured um, capitalism. The, the, you know, so basically the way the way it works is that I work with a couple of dozen undergrads and over the course of a semester, we basically are doing kind of, you know, what do we want to learn? What do we want to learn about the generation? We're doing a lot of outreach uh, research. 
And people, and this was many, many years ago, there was a student who really wanted to understand the degree to which his generation supported capitalism, socialism, and a bunch of other isms, okay? I got the poll back, it was a simple, do you support or oppose? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Do you call yourself a socialist, a capitalist, or yes, no, yes, no. I got the poll back, David, in uh, less than half uh, of young people said they supported capitalism, less than half. I thought we have a margin of error of five points, which means like one out of 20 polls, you know, there's like a flock. I did the poll again, okay? And I included everybody. It wasn't until over people over the age of 50, and this was many years ago, um, where there was net support for capitalism, okay? Support for socialism was even lower. Again, about, uh, I, I think it was like third, third, 31% had support for socialism. So from that point on, I've, I've focused a lot on this issue. I've done a lot of other polling, other research, and what I would argue is that it's not, if you don't, if you reject capitalism, young people aren't saying that they support socialism, but what they're saying is they're rejecting the way capitalism is practiced. Okay. And when we actually, in another survey, give them the definition of capitalism, support goes up by seven points. When we give them the definition of traditional socialism, support goes down by nine points. And this is like, we detailed this in the book. So I don't think it does anybody any good, especially for older Republicans who want to kind of make inroads with this generation to write them off. You know, there are lessons, you know, they look and they have access to the internet and research and there are plenty of examples of, 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 of those, you know, um, Nordic countries having more opportunity, you know, and more creativity and more wellness. That's what they're uh, uh, appealing to. Yeah, my unscientific theory about younger voters and socialism is that they, they, they think, because they came of age after the Cold War and don't have these visions of repressive Soviet communism, um, I guess unless you pay attention to Cuba, that they, they think socialism is really like the fruits of capitalism, just more people get it, right? It's not that anybody gets less. It's just this idea that everybody gets to live in a house as nice as mine. Yeah, exactly. We're not, it's not, right, it's, it's, it's Canada. Sweden, Norway, it's not Venezuela, Cuba, and, uh, and, uh, and Soviet Union. Um, will Gen, do you have any idea yet if Gen Zers, Zoomers is another term you use for them in uh, fight, how Gen Z is channeling their fear and passion to save America, uh, will become more conservative as they grow older and accrue all of the responsibilities of of people that get older, children and mortgages and bills and college savings accounts. And all of a sudden, it's not that you don't want to support your country by paying taxes, uh, whatever it is you're supposed to pay. But if you could pay less of them, that's not so bad because that's more money I'll pour into my college account or another vacation I'll take my kids on or, 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 or you know, it makes it easier to buy a bigger house, whatever the case is. I'm not saying you have to think that way if you get older, but, but sometimes people get older and that's what happens. And I'm wondering if it'll happen to them. You know, I don't, I don't think it's kind of my job necessarily as a pollster to kind of to predict the future, though I do predict, right? You know, I do, I do make. I some admire you for admitting you're not predicting right? future. Snapshot right, you know, in time. Like, right? Um, you know, and I think there's a difference between conservative and Republican too. And when we when we talk about the kind of the future, um, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say that there is. Uh, some evidence, okay, that some millennials have have become 
you know, slightly less democratic, okay, in their 30s than in their 20s. It's very complicated though, right? Because we're dealing with Obama versus Hillary in some cases, right? There's a, there's like a lot of like noise in this. So there is, there is some evidence, okay? But I don't think there's much evidence to make Republicans or conservatives feel better, you know, that this is going to be kind of a natural evolution of who they are. Okay, because we now, you know, the oldest millennial, um, one of the oldest millennials is our secretary of transportation, as an example, Pete, right? Uh, Buttigieg, who ran for president. So, you know, they're 40, 41 years old now, settling down, and they are among the most reliable progressive voting blocks in the country. And when we think about the suburban vote, so many people think about like the suburbs, we're dealing with millennials, right? Parents uh, of kids who are going to school, owning homes and those sorts of things. And um, so that's where millennials are. And we can use that, you know, as a little bit of an indication. Um, so I'm not optimistic that they just naturally do that, but that's the point. They need to be tended to, they need to be listened to. We talked about um, a couple of minutes ago about Biden saying, I hear you. He had to go out and earn their support, build trust and earn that vote. And unless Republicans choose to do that, um, why would they consider, you know, um, you know, supporting, you know, uh, uh, Republican policies, you know, if they're virtually no effort to kind of connect with them on, on, uh, on, on, on those grounds. But there's listening and then there's finding common ground on issues that matter. Right. I mean, it, look, if you're a Republican, you can hold, and I can say this about Democrats too. I mean, we're just, it's just because of what we're talking about, right? You can, I can listen all, it's like with my kids, right? My kids are nine and six. I mean, I can listen to them until the cows come home. But if I don't agree to let them use their PS, their PlayStation 5 on weeknights, they're never going to be okay with it, no matter how much listening I did to them lobbying me uh, to let them do it, right? So there's my, my, my trite way of saying, if you don't tend to hold the same views on climate change, if you don't tend to hold the same views on some, on social issues or the Second Amendment or taxes, um, is listening enough? Or are there some areas of common ground that if Republicans would just focus on those and talk about those while they're listening, that they might be able to turn some votes there? So I'm not sure it's my job or nor are you asking me to write a strategic plan for Republicans to win the youth vote, right? Uh, right. Having said that, um, I believe that there is far more nuance in our politics and our positions than um, your campaigns and candidates appreciate, okay? Um, so I guess what I'm saying is for anyone to... So you have to listen first, right? And you have to build trust because they're not going to like you until unless they know that they understand what you're doing, number one. And then you do need to have a plan and need to address five big issues, which I'm going to talk about. So I, for your kids, as an example, okay, you're saying, you know what, well, you can't play, you're not going to be able to play PlayStation from this time to that time, but you're not saying that you can't ever play PlayStation or that you can't have free time that you can choose what to do. You're just trying to, you're making a, a position um, on this one small thing, okay? So I think that anyone who's interested, you need to address five topics, okay? You need to see if there's some sort of common ground. 
you know, to what you've been writing about for quite a while. Like, I'm not sure that there is much any common ground, sadly, um, among, you know, kind of the, the Trump version of the Republican Party today on many of these issues. OK, you know, um, as part of my work at Harvard, we visit most White Houses. We we brief. We talk about this in the book a little bit. You know, we brief administrations looking for opportunity to connect with younger people. We offer lots of ideas. Most of it was rejected. OK, but for Republicans to engage with young people, you need to address the issues we talked about, econ economic inequality. Right. You need to address that. I'm not going to say how you need to address it. You need to recognize it. You need to recognize uh, gun violence and school shootings. You need to recognize climate. You need to recognize, you know, um, the issues regarding, you know, race and racism or racial justice, right? And you need to do it in a way that supports um, our institutions, right? And, and, and that structure. So you would think there'd be some common ground there. You would think there'd be some, George Bush found a fair amount of common ground, frankly, right? Even, even after, even after the, you know, incredibly unpopular by the end, you know, war, he won 45% of the youth vote against John Kerry, you know? Um, so, you know, um, as someone whose first concern is to elevate young voices and to boost turnout among all people, frankly, I was dis disappointed in the efforts that the Romney cam campaign make made honestly you know because i thought there was some some opportunity there but frankly i think they kind of dismissed the youth vote didn't invest in it which created i think that kind of that opportunity for for occupy wall street and 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 bernie and the more progressive elements of the democratic party to kind of seize the uh seize the space um did you i realized that you were working on the biden campaign and, and helping them uh with with the youth vote uh, during this campaign, but I, I don't care that, you know, I had you in this podcast because I wanted your expertise. Um, was was Donald Trump particularly toxic when it came to the youth vote? Or was he just like a mainstream Republican had been? As you just referenced, Mitt Romney is a Republican nominee in 2012, didn't invest in it, didn't do well. Um, obviously, George W. Bush had done uh, pretty well back in 04. Where was Trump on the scale of they don't like Republicans, but some they really don't like. Yeah, the latter. I mean, and this is a much, this is, a, I think, a much more significant issue than we might appreciate. Because if you think about our political values, right? So, you know, we're the same generation and we have, we might think differently about politics. We probably have more, we, we probably agree with all, all the things as well. But, you know, we, we grew up, um, you know, the uh, the miracle on ice and, and and Reagan and the fall you know of the of the uh, of the communists et cetera et cetera those are kind of shared experiences okay as members of Gen X and I would argue even if you're a little bit to to the right I'm a little bit to the left I don't think there's a, a probably a, a large gap between where we are on most issues okay however um, when it comes to Donald Trump okay. Um, he is influencing. He is the president who followed Obama. Okay, so anyone who followed Obama is going to have an outsized impact in how young people are thinking about and approaching politics. Okay, so you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 20 years old. This is who you're looking at, and we know that people, younger people, like fairness. You know, they believe in opportunity, and very, very quickly, and they care about the environment. 
Um, they care about collaboration um, on the global stage. And very, very quickly, Donald Trump was just a shock to their system, a shock to their system, right? Pulling out of Paris, making light of that, um, building walls, keeping people out based on where they're coming from or the religion, they're putting Steve Bannon on the Security Council, firing, you know, certain people, et cetera, et cetera. So it was just like a shock, right? And then it followed by just a series of other events, you know, uh, including Charlottesville, including kind of other kinds of responses. So what's interesting to me is that young people, like, like I only care about figure skating, like every speed skating every four years. Okay. It's an opportunity, right. To win me over as a fan. Same thing with politics. Okay. So everything is being debated. They're seeing this through the lens of what Trump is doing, which is essentially dividing people when all they want to do is be united to have that same moment that we had when we were young and Trump just didn't give it to them. So I think that's going to kind of be, you know, a significant weight on the backs of, of, of Republicans for a long time, unless there's, unless there's someone who can act more like Romney or, you know, McCain or, you know, some of the other standard bearers that the parties have. John De La Volpe is the author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. We've got a really good discussion on Gen Z, exactly who they are, what motivates them politically. I wanted to close, John, where we started out, and that is talking about how Gen Z the 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 youngest of the young of the youth voting cohort uh, thinks about America. You know, you and I were sort of reminiscing there briefly about the miracle on ice, and you know, you and I came up when we had this existential battle uh, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, and and you know, we had grandparents who had had or had been to war in World War II, the greatest generation. My father went to Korea, right? So we had all of this around us, even if nothing quite was happening in our current history, we were we were so close to all of this, right? And so this idea of American exceptionalism was something we were steeped in. There were always lots of different political point of views. It's America, not everybody agreed with everything we did, but but this was a part of our ethos. So, so I wanted to ask you, when, when Gen Z thinks about the United States, do they think that the United States is exceptional relative to other countries around the world? Do they believe in this idea of American exceptionalism? Um, and are they patriotic in the way, you know, I've gone to sporting events over the years, and again, particularly with people who are even older than I am, and the national anthem plays, and they don't just stand, they sing, they get chills, and, and all of that. I, I think that it's, they're clearly, I, I mean, it's, again, there's not enough nuance in our political discourse today. Um, so I don't know if it's fair to say they are, they, this whole generation believes in exceptionalism or not. I will tell you they are far more, um, they are far less likely to say that America is a great, is, is better than any other country. We've asked the question a variety of ways and a variety of different platforms. There's more nuance to it. They think that they're, uh, not they, they're, plenty of young Gen Zers who believe that there are other countries as great as America. Okay. So they are um, less willing to accept the notion of American exceptionalism than other generations. Number one, number two, um, again, I believe, and I work at Harvard part-time. I write this book. I have a company called social sphere. Our company does a lot of research to help the United States military 
understand um, the connections between youth attitudes and the flag so they can recruit and retain young men, young men, women. I spent a lot of time kind of in this, in this space. Um, and, and I don't think that one, and, and through that lens, I see deep levels of patriotism, right? I can think of no more patriotic person than some of like the young, you know, Hispanic young men and women who are immigrants from, you know, Mexico and Central America who desperately want to serve in one of our military branches to give thanks to the opportunity that our country gave his mother. Okay. So they might have a different definition of patriotism than you and I have. A lot of it, I would argue, is because the flag has become, you know, a political symbol, um, sadly, and used um, in many ways to divide and not unite people. And I think we have to have a, just a conversation, right, about how we're defining and showing and displaying patriotism. But I think that um, I wouldn't be able to write this book and feel so strongly about this generation if I didn't think they were patriotic and doing things for all of us, whether they agree or not, right? They're not just fighting for themselves. They're fighting for all of us, for all of us who have to have a side out to a two or three, you know, to afford an apartment in the town that you grew up in, you know, for those, for those folks who are hustling to, you know, to try to save enough money to attend a community college or a college. That's what they're doing it for. And by definition, I think that means they love their country. John Delavolpe is the author of Fight, How Gen Z is Channeling Their Fear and Passion to Save America. John, uh, break a leg on the book. Thanks so much for coming on In Trump Shadow. Where can people pick up the book if they want to check it out? Um, thankfully, it's available now everywhere. So if you want to support your local bookshop, that's terrific. If you're an Amazon person, it's available there for prime shipping. Hopefully you get there the next day. Um, it's available absolutely everywhere. And I hope folks like it and uh, they review it and, and send me a note if they disagree. But I really um, appreciate the opportunity, David. And I hope hope people read it and uh, Democrats or Republicans and kind of really think carefully um, ab about what this generation is trying to tell us. John Del Volpe, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, is now available for purchase wherever books are sold. And every day, you can find my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. We'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.